Professor Saunders, you are the 10th Good Heart Professor to be interviewed for the archive mm-hmm. and the second retrospective uh, scholar, the first being Professor Zines. Uh, you held the Good Heart Chair from 2005 to six, just as this archive was starting up. I'm extremely grateful to you for sparing the time from a very busy schedule participating in the public law conference. Thank you very much. Um, currently, you are the Laureate Professor Emeritus mm-hmm. at Melbourne Law School, and you're also the Director for the Centre for Comparative Constitutional Studies. No, I'm the founding director of that centre. There is a current director. Thank you. Thank you. Just alter that. We obviously don't have much time this afternoon, mm-hmm. but I hope we could go through a few topics, starting with your early life, your university education, your professional career, your good heart tenure, your research, and then some general views on the constitutional way forward, both for Australia and post-Brexit UK. Mm-hmm. So if we could start with your early life. You were born in 1944 in Quetta. I was born in Quetta, which in those days was in India although it's now in Pakistan, on the uh, northwest frontier. Um, And I was born there because uh, my father was in the Indian Army. Uh, My mother was American. She'd gone to uh, India to marry him before the war. Uh, And uh, my father was actually fighting in Burma um, for much of the time around the period when I was born, although I do have some photographs of him actually being there, so I'm not quite sure how that happened. And my sister and I castigate ourselves that we really didn't ask either of our parents about that period of their lives. Um, Because now that I'm older and can understand the the challenges that that must have presented, uh, to have a small baby in Quetta towards the end of the Second World War, when the war in the Pacific was still raging, with your husband away, um, seemed to be absolutely remarkable. And my mother got us both out of there and on a ship to the United States when I was three months old. So it was the most remarkable story, really. Well, it's a fascinating trajectory, and particularly when you look at the position on the map, I mean, it looked to me as though it was sort of a dry, dusty part of mm. the world. But I think that um, in the period of British India, it was quite a nice spot in the hills, actually. Right. Um, And my impression is that it was a place that you went to to get away from the heat of Delhi, uh, for example. I think. Right. But I haven't been back. And, And what made your parents decide then to move to Australia? Well, the um, Indian Army came to an end, as you know, with Indian independence. So on any view, my father was going to need to find another career. Uh, He, in any event, I think, left before the end because he was involved with the Americans in the occupation of Japan after Hiroshima. And we were all there as a family. Uh, I was in Japan when I was two with with both my parents. Uh, And that lasted for a couple of years, and then they just needed to decide where to go and what to do with their lives. Um, And my understanding is that the wartime Britain, I think, wasn't particularly attractive to either of them, just because life was so hard, although I had grandparents there. Um, And they tossed up between the United States, Canada, and Australia. 
uh, and came he- came to Australia and in particular to Melbourne, I think, largely because there were other people from the Indian Army who were there and they would know some people when they arrived. So they began their new life in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, which is then where you obviously... I grew up and my sister was born and uh, really my parents also lived for the rest of their lives. And you went to the um, grammar school, the Church of England Girls Grammar, grammar school. school. Do you have any memories of that period? Um, yes, of course I do. I mean, everybody remembers their schooling to some degree. Um, and it was a perfectly comfortable period. Rather more interesting, I think, during my sort of schooling was that we used to go backwards and forwards to the United States because my mother thought, possibly wrongly, that she needed to do that to maintain her American citizenship. So we had a sort of slightly cosmopolitan childhood anyway in that respect. And uh, I mention that only because I was interviewed by my grandson, who's now 18, but a couple of years ago when he was a little younger, he decided he would interview me for a school project. And he asked me a question which was, what was it about my early life that proved influential? And I'd never really thought about that before. But I said to him, and I'm sure it's right, we moved around a lot. My parents didn't come from Australia. We moved around a lot anyway. And so I just grew up knowing that there was a world out there. And I think that has actually been quite influential, in a, you know, unconsciously, in the way in which uh, I've approached life. And an early start... Um, and to this day, I mean, you are very not averse at all to travel. No, and but very interested in what, how people live and operate their systems of government elsewhere in the world. Endlessly fascinating subject. Which began at an early age. From well, certainly the idea that, that um, there was more to the world than downtown Melbourne yes. was just something that was inherent in our household. I guess throughout my childhood. While you were at school, did you were you interested in law at that stage? And perhaps even I noticed one of your interests is archaeology. Mm. Did that begin at that period? Look, I think I was interested in history at school, uh, and my interest in law grew out of that as much as anything else. Uh, I did do Latin. Uh, classical history, those sorts of subjects at school, um, as well as other things, obviously. Uh, So clearly I was interested in those things, and I did decide at an astonishingly early age that I wanted to do law on the basis of no information about it whatsoever. (laughs) So I'm lucky it turned out as well as it did. Yes. Um, Professor Saunders, we come now to your your tertiary education. Mm -hmm. You did a BA LLB at Melbourne. And uh, you had decided to take law. Um, you did a PhD immediately afterwards, and I wondered wh- whether you had any specialist subjects in your PhD. Uh, the PhD wasn't actually immediately afterwards. It was about 10 years later, um, at least by the time I finished it. So I graduated from the law school in 66, and I graduated with my PhD in 76. Um, And in between that, I had three children, Uh, hence the delay and hence also the fact that I did everything in Melbourne. Um, But yes, the the topic of my PhD was intergovernmental relations in Australia, which is a sort of a 
an applied aspect of Australian federalism. And then before you settled into your your established career, did you do any postdocs anywhere? No. Um, coming then to your professional career, which according to your CV tells me that in 1989 you were given a personal chair as Professor of Law at Melbourne. And I wondered if you could say briefly what posts you had in the interim period between doing your PhD and being awarded your chair. Um, well, most of my positions were at Melbourne Law School. I did have an earlier position as a tutor at La Trobe Law School. Um, and I don't even recall exactly what happened when, but I think I began as a lecturer, um, became a senior lecturer, a reader at various stages in that period, uh, and then um, was given the very considerable honour in those days of a personal chair that being the sort of chair you didn't need to apply for, which was all very convenient. And at a comparatively young age as well. Um, and you also were made a laureate professor, and I wondered if you could recount the circumstances of this appointment, which is a very prestigious position at Melbourne. It is, and again, uh, so the university has been through various stages in honouring um, its scholars. Uh, and the personal chair was one early stage. Um, but after that period, uh, the university started um, putting in place a system for promotions to chairs. Before that, um, there had just been a small fixed number of chairs uh, across the university for which normally you applied unless you um, received one of the, the personal chairs. Once um, uh, promotion to professor became a more regular career move, there were a lot more professors in the university. Uh, and on the basis of that, the university decided it would introduce a, a higher category, of more, more, a, a category of um, special category of professor, if you like. Uh, as an honour uh, to, to some of its professors, quite a small number, I have to say, uh, and also as a mechanism for keeping them, um, I think was part of the rationale. So the laureate professors, and I think, I, I, might not, I don't have the figures right, I don't think, but I think at that stage there may have been around 20, something like that, um, was uh, uh, just a, a move driven by the evolution of the university itself. That was in 2007. Mm -hmm. And since then, have, has the number grown? Well, since then, I think they've, they've gone on to the, yes, the next phase. Um, they still have laureates. Um, and I don't think that number has grown particularly. But they've introduced yet another category, which is between the laureate and the sort of so-called ordinary professors, um, so as to be able to recognise the achievements of a wider range of people across the university. Thank you. Um, and the price of being a laureate is that I sit on the committee to decide some of these things. <laughs> Uh, in 2005-06, you were the Goodhart Professor here in Cambridge, and I wonder if you have any outstanding recollections from that period. Mm, it was a wonderful period. Uh, I was extremely happy here. I loved the, 
time as the good heart um, greatly, as did my husband, I might say. Um, and it was a very productive time, uh, interacting with colleagues and the faculty here. I taught a subject on comparative public law with David Feldman, which was very entertaining for the students, as you can probably uh, imagine. Um, I was also extremely busy at that time because I was at that stage president of the International Association of Constitutional Law. And one of the um, tasks of the president is to help to organize the next World Congress of the IACL, which is a big sort of world gathering. Um, and the Congress um, for my period as uh, president was in Athens. And there were all sorts of glitches with the organisation of the conference of, of the Congress, which in the end was a great success. Um, but I did spend quite a lot of time as my during my time as a good heart professor, rather to my sorrow actually, getting on a plane and going to Athens, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then uh, sort of coming back and traipsing across country again from Heathrow. Um, so, but so that was a very sort of interesting aspect of my time here. But I was also um, uh, writing a book, or editing a book. Um, just trying to remember which one it is. Um, I think it was a book on um, legislative and executive relations in federal systems, um, which I was co-editing with a colleague, um, which took quite a lot of my time. I can still see myself sitting in the good heart study, <laughs> beavering away um, with this book, plus a number of other commitments that I had while I was here. So it sounds like it was an extremely productive year. It was a very, very productive year. And uh, our family also joined us for Christmas, so that was a very happy memory as well. And a, a nice contrast with the typical Melbourne Christmas. Complete contrast with the <laughs> typical Melbourne Christmas but very happy. And I still um, have contact with a few of the students from that time as well, uh, two of them in particular, but from Melbourne, and, uh, and I see them on a reasonably frequent basis. Um, Professor Saunders, that brings us to um, something of a discussion, or if we could just cover some of your research interests. Mm -hmm. Um, you've written numerous publications dealing with issues of constitutionalism and federal forms of government, uh, many of them comparing different jurisdictions, and I've had a, a try to have a brief look at some of these, mm. um, but obviously all, all that I can attempt is a, a superficial overview. Uh, nevertheless, it struck me that um, throughout the, your pieces and your books, um, there are two sort of thorny issues, if you like, and I wondered whether you could uh, comment on them. The first is the status of the Crown in Australian public affairs, and I wondered how you think this could be resolved or will be resolved. Well, it depends what you think, what you mean by the status of the Crown. Are you referring to the book, that, uh, the article that I wrote there in the Melbourne University Law Review? Um, I was actually looking at this book, The, the Constitution book, yeah. of Australia. Okay. There, there's, a, there's several points to be made about the Crown in Australia. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, there has been, as you know, a Republican movement in Australia, which uh, 
culminated, at least for the moment, in an unsuccessful referendum um, towards the end of last century. Um, I expect that issue will, at some stage, come back on the Australian public agenda again, although it doesn't really look like it's going to happen anytime soon at the moment. My own view is that where the Australians went wrong the last time, um, apart from the fact that the proponents of a republic were trying to achieve it in the face of a government that didn't want it, which is always very difficult, um, is that they took a far too narrow view of what amounted to being a republic. Um, and they did that deliberately uh, because they thought that would be easier to win, to, an, argue, an easier argument to win. Although I'm not sure that that was true because it meant that you had to define a republic as merely breaking your links with the crown and putting a few arrangements in place to substitute for that rather than rethinking those parts of the constitution that are clearly driven by monarchical considerations, for example, leaving it open to the head of state to um, decide whether and when to dissolve the parliament, subject to some rather contentious and unexpressed constitutional conventions. Um, and thinking about it more recently, it seemed to me that um, there would have been advantage, and there would still be advantage, in someone thinking through in a more fundamental way what a republic might actually involve in a country like Australia. So there's that set of issues, and that's an important set of issues. Um, but there's another set of issues which I've also written about in a very recent, a relatively recent article in the Melbourne University Law Review, and that assumes that we retain the monarchy but focuses on the use of the terminology of the crown to personify the state. And one of the things that's happened in Australia, interestingly, I think, and I don't know whether to what extent it is connected with the formal Republican movement, is that we tend to have reduced our reliance on the concept of the crown. Uh, and, in fact, there's high court doctrine now saying, well, we don't need the concept of the crown because the constitution itself gives us a concept of the polity, um, and that does all the work and more than you needed by a concept of the crown. And all sorts of jurisprudential consequences follow from that. One of the other things that follows from it, however, and this is why I wrote the article, is that it also casts light on the way in which the different countries in the British Commonwealth have evolved. So despite the very considerable similarities between the underlying constitutional ideas in the United Kingdom, Canada and Australia, for example, and despite the fact that formally we're all monarchies and have the same Queen and all the rest of it, our usage of the, the concept of the Crown is completely different. Um, and so one of my purposes in that article was to show how and why um, even apparently similar countries uh, diverged in those ways. It's a very interesting issue. Thank you. Um, the second issue that I discerned is this whole question of the case law, federal statutes and the native title following the Mabo case. Mm. And in this regard I had a 
a very interesting conversation with Justice Finn in 2011, mm -hmm. and he mentioned how hard it had been for him having to give um, judgment. Uh, he actually physically went to Perth mm -hmm. for the case of uh, Bodney and Bonnell in 2008, mm -hmm. and he hoped at that point that there would be some federal legislation which would accommodate these situations. Um, Professor Saunders, how do you see this moving forward? The native title area? Look, my involvement with that has been much more tangential, in fact, um, although my life touches on it at various points. So in um, the 1990s, I was involved in a very controversial matter advising the government on um, whether a particular area in South Australia was um, sacred to Aboriginal women and should therefore be protected. Um, and so I had some close involvement with Indigenous questions at that stage. I, of course, like any other public lawyer, am familiar with Mabo and the other um, decisions of the court that surround it. Um, and more recently, I've become reconnected with these questions in connection with a movement to recognise Indigenous Australians in the Constitution, which may or, there again, may not lead to a referendum either next year or the year after. Uh, and I've had some um, indirect involvement in some of the meetings of Indigenous leaders around the country to consider how this issue might most constructively be handled. Um, so, so that's my involvement in those issues. And Professor Finns, or Justice Finns, was uh, uh, of a different kind insofar as he was a judge deciding some of these questions. Yeah. I mean, another way of thinking about it is to say it falls into two categories. There's the category that um, is Australian. That's how I began my, my academic career as a um, person studying Australian constitutional law, um, and I've remained um, completely up to date with that, uh, particularly with the federal aspects of it, but not only. But the second aspect of my work is comparative constitutional law, and that also feeds into the Australian material now, although it didn't always it enables me to see Australia from different perspectives as well and I th always think that that's a great benefit of comparative law. So I do do uh, quite a lot of work also thinking about uh, comparative law and in fact that's what I'll be speaking on at the um, public law conference, conference here. Which leads into the final part of this uh, conversation which is uh, just some general questions and I've actually based the, these upon your considerable experience in comparative federal constitutional mm -hmm. work, uh, particularly in common law jurisdictions. And you said in your research paper, uh, Reforming the Australian Federal Democracy, mm. uh, which was published in 2015, that uh, this was the, the whole question about the sort of interstate uh, relations and then the, the relations with the actual Commonwealth. That you and the problems, mm -hmm. and you said you didn't think this would necessarily require constitutional change, mm -hmm. but that it should not be ruled out. And I wondered what you saw as the ideal way forward for Australia versus the, 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 the in terms of the state Commonwealth yeah. relationship. 
Well, look, uh, that paper is not so much a research paper as a diatribe written from the heart. Um, we have a federal system which has become increasingly centralised and it's become centralised without constitutional change, which means that it's done through informal mechanisms, most of which involve um, executive action. So to that extent, it's become increasingly opaque uh, as well, with lines of uh, accountability extremely muddled, um, presenting a very complex picture for Australian voters. Um, and it has seemed to me that that in itself is a problem for Australian democracy, but that in any event, in a country, particularly the geographic size of Australia, uh, to have vibrant uh, elected levels of government uh, at different levels um, is highly desirable. Uh, you know, Canberra is a very long way from most of the rest of the country. Uh, and in many ways, an overburdened level of government who can't possibly achieve everything it tries to um, influence. Um, so my argument in that paper, which I also wrote with a colleague, uh, Michael Cromlin, was the real impediment to doing something about this is just to realise that it's a problem. Um, uh, it would be possible enough to rebalance the Federation with a bit of political will uh, and considerable leadership vision. But, and, and there's no point in saying it all depends on constitutional change, because constitutional change is very difficult to achieve in Australia. On the other hand, if, there, if constitutional change were to be on offer, there are all sorts of ways now in the light of federal experience elsewhere, including, I might say, in this country, um, in, uh, that you might learn from and uh, take advantage of to make the constitution more responsive to these sorts of considerations. Thank you. Um, the other point, um, still you're trying to generalise in terms of your considerable um, and illustrious output, um, brings me to constitutional issues of post-Brexit UK. And I wondered whether um, any sort of likely new UK constitutional, constitutional arrangements with the EU would affect future constitutional relations with Australia. I don't think so. Um, I mean, all the signs are at the moment that uh, if, the UK, if and when the UK actually Brexits, um, which certainly doesn't, because if it's happening tomorrow, um, it will seek to strengthen its relations with the former, with the old Commonwealth countries, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, wherever. Um, whether that would happen in a constitutional way or in a other ways, including sort of trade and freer movement of peoples remains to be seen. I was amused as I came through Heathrow yesterday to see a sign saying, you know, citizens from Australia can register for uh, sort of easy access to the UK or words to that effect. I thought, my God, that's a sign of the times. I was here three, three months ago and I don't think I saw that sign then. So it'll be very... I, uh, look, honestly, I don't think it will make a huge difference in constitutional terms, um, whatever other social and political arrangements there might be. Because I suppose that a complicating factor here is the whole question of Scotland 
and um, I wondered whether you thought a solution might be for a formal British Federation arrangement. Within Britain, within the UK itself? Well, you know, I gave the Williams Lecture here a couple of years ago in which I argued that you know, there's a sense in which Britain is already a federation. It's not a normal one, and it's all we all know it's complicated by the position of England. But uh, um, its arrangements are now so um, now so obviously have characteristics of autonomy for the devolved areas that uh, you know it's a federal type model of sorts. Whether you will go further down the path to federalise that if you think that federation requires a a written entrenched constitution, which most places do, is another question because I think that would be a really big deal here. Uh, So it seems to me to be a little more likely at the moment that um, devolution will, of course, remain in place uh, and it will deepen, not just in Scotland, but in Northern Ireland and possibly Wales. I see that Wales is suggesting yesterday and this morning that it should have a representative on the United Kingdom Supreme Court. Um, but that those arrangements will be held in place by rather more characteristically British ways of doing things like constitutional conventions and a little bit of self-denial on the part of the centre. Now that's not a, you know, that's an interesting model for the world, but it's not a panacea either. Um, I'm no great expert on how devolution works here, but just reading some of the parliamentary committee debates for the purposes of the Williams lecture, and then I maintained my interest afterwards. It did seem to me that the politicians and the bureaucrats in Westminster and Whitehall didn't really seem to have any great understanding of the concept of devolution or great respect for uh, the autonomous decision-making of the devolved units. And unless they get their act together in that regard, there will be problems. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And those problems may in turn drive you to think about some more formalised arrangement. Thank you very much. I can only thank you again. I hope that's been useful to you. A most interesting account, and I, I know it's going to be of value to our readers.